Thank you, Alex, for reminding us. Remember how our God never failed us. We were told over and over in the Psalms to recount that and to sing that and to tell that to people his good work that he has done, reminding all the wonderful deeds. And so thank you for that reminder. If you have little ones through grade six, they can be dismissed at this time if you'd like them to be. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to pick up in verse 5, as is our habit. We're going to read from 5 to verse 10. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. If uh, you want that, you can find that around you, or read and follow along in the one that you normally read each day and memorize in your Understanding will be enriched. Look at verse 5, if you would, as we begin our time together in the Word. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? But I trust you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For, verse 8, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice, verse 9, when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. Verse 10, for this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. There's a well-known true story. It comes from U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, a magazine of the Naval Institute. Two battleships assigned to a training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. The writer says, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Captain called out, is it steady or moving astern? The lookout replied, steady, Captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we're on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the light signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. Captain said, send, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. Came the reply, flashed back, I am a seaman, second class, you had better change course 20 degrees. At that time, the captain was furious, he spat out, send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. It's a funny story, absurd, I think, in the telling. It was really a struggle for authority and attitude that would have ended in disaster for the ship, certainly. By the captain's own assumed importance and his appearance of power, he temporarily disregarded the directions given to him by someone he considered beneath him. The captain didn't realize the danger he was in. The story, I believe, is analogous to the situation facing Paul and the self-important false teachers and uh, headstrong followers and the long-term unrepentant that he's having to deal with and have a discussion with before his third visit. They have challenged Paul at every turn, ignoring his admonitions and his corrections. And so Paul writes in verse 3, he says, You are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And we saw last time that that was our twelfth example from Paul of a faithful minister for Christ to speak 
through him. Every elder who is faithful to the Lord, who understands his role, would love that to be the would love to be the living illustration of that. It's our calling for Christ to speak through us. Yours as well. If you lead a small group, if you lead a Bible study, if you teach from the pulpit, if you have a Bible study, you lead at work. Your calling is for Christ to speak through you. The Word of God has authority. It has power. Faithfulness to what the Word says, what it means by what it says, and how that it's applies, allows those who sit under that kind of teaching to hear Christ's voice. That's the idea. Paul says, Christ is not towards you, but mighty in you. The authority is there, no matter what they might think about him. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He expresses authority in his church through his word, proclaimed by men who lead it. That's how it works. And then we ended last time in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For indeed he was crucified, Paul says, because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, and yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Paul says, you say I'm weak and I'm not powerful, you won't listen to what I say. Paul would agree, I'm not powerful, I am weak. He wouldn't argue that point. And, and that was our next wonderful example, number 13, as Paul is a faithful minister, he knows that he has no power or ability of his own to accomplish anything of external value. And so what we've done is we've kind of tracked through this passage. We got to number 13 there of examples of what it looks like to lead the church. We understand from First and Second Timothy, and we will even better as we go through those passages, what the requirements are for those who wish to lead the church. But in Paul's instance and in the others, we get to see what it actually, how it actually works out, what that kind of leadership looks like. We saw the illustration that the crucifixion of Jesus was irrefutable evidence of his weakness. Paul says, you think I'm weak. Well, remember Jesus, he was weak. He came into the world in the form of a servant. Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself, came in the fashion of a man, human weakness, tired, sad, sorrowful, disappointed. He wept as a servant. He was humble. He was betrayed, mocked, falsely accused, by all appearances weak. He became obedient unto death. The author of life, in other words, the resurrection and the life, submitted himself to the most obvious indication of a cursed, sinful world. He let himself be whipped by wicked men and put to death by wicked men. And then Paul says, yet he lives because of the power of God. This is the resurrection, of course. God raised him from the dead. He was so weak that his enemies defeated him and they executed him in the most demeaning and degrading and dishonorable manner possible. God in human form, fully human, so susceptible to death, and yet, he says, he lives. In that weakness, he was made alive, and he came out of the grave on the third day, and his resurrection being the most significant evidence and disclosure of his power. So Paul uses Jesus, then, to illustrate this pattern. He was weak, weak all the way to death, and yet he is alive because of the power of God. And Paul says, I'm weak. You say I'm weak? It's true. He's in fear and trembling. He endures a lot. He lives with grief, discomfort, need, frustration. He's been crushed, abused, spurned. He's demeaned, he's disrespected, and he's mocked. But he says, we are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. In other words, he gives all the glory to God for whatever can be accomplished. The power that's in his weakness is demonstrated in their conversion and in their sanctification in the church. He says, I was weak, you're right, but for the power of God, that work is done inside the church. Like Jesus, it was Paul's weakness that God used to make him strong. The power of God came into his life. It transformed him and surged through his life to transform the Corinthians and all the other churches where Paul ministered. Paul said, you've seen enough to know. You've seen the demonstration of, of uh, the acts of the apostles. You've seen the work that's inside the church. Through his word, 
in the ministry that he's given him. And when I come, Paul says, there'll be even more visible evidence when I arrive. And did he mean he's going to come and use some personal authority? No. He's going to command them and say, I'm a battleship turn. He's not. It means that he would come in, take the word of God, and apply it to the sin of the church with a firm hand. That's what he says he's going to do. And we know from Matthew 18, 20, Jesus was there with his authority affirming all that must go on. Jesus would come through the application of his word in Corinth among those who continued in unrepentant sin. Like he said, he would come in Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. I will make war against them with a sword of my mouth, purging the church. Jesus comes the first time in weakness and human flesh as a servant, established the church, and amid the hostility and the insult and the false religion, he came in the humility of the cross. Paul comes to the Corinthian church for the first time in much fear and concern, and he was humiliated by many there in the church in his second visit, despised, maligned by false teachers constantly. But Jesus is going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords when he comes again. He will be the rightful judge of the whole world. His first, with the first time Christ came, he came in weakness. Next time he comes, he comes in power and judgment. And that's the idea that Paul's expressing here. So to Paul, who is one with his master in weakness and, and in compassion and patience and long-suffering, desiring the repentance of all, just like Jesus did, is one with him also in the power of authority and judgment of the word of Christ. And the authority is there because Jesus has lent it to Paul on his behalf, and so Paul communicates that. If his first visit appeared marked with weakness, in some of their eyes, of course, the defiant ones in Corinth will find that his next visit is marked with power. Certainly in some small comparison Paul's next visit is going to be like the second coming of Christ. I'm, I'm, I dread having to come this way. It brings me very low, but if I have to do it, I'm going to come in the strength Jesus lends to with sin, and that's the idea. We saw all through the scriptures, the church needs this authority, and you find that when it's absent in the church, the church is in big trouble. Even though it may seem big and things are going on, without the authority of the scriptures coming to bear on those who continue in open unrepentant sin, then It'd be a difficult thing for the church. And our only authority is the Scripture, and we're commanded to bring it clearly, compellingly, and with conviction. And we're to obey it, and we're to call you to obey it, that we both may be blessed and Christ can be honored. The need in the church today is just the same as it was in the first century. Every and every century after that is to repent and to be discipled and to be sanctified and to submit to the authority of the Word of God. That's the need in the church. It's still the need that's there today. It's the need that's always been in the church. These are still the issues, although, of course, I don't think you could tell that when you sample the emphasis of many modern churches, that it, the, need, the biggest need is to repent, be discipled, and be sanctified, and submit to the authority of the Word of God. But to fully illustrate that, uh, Paul's 13th example for a faithful minister, the minister that follows Christ's example is concerned that his people understand that the authority of, with which he speaks is not his own. It can't be his own. It's the authority of God speaking Christ through his word, and the church should be able to recognize that. Did you mark that? The church should be able to recognize that. It's always, you know, anytime the, uh, those who lead the church have to speak to someone, it's always, well, he said that to me. He has no right to say that to me. But see, if he brought the word of Christ to you and clearly explained where you departed from it, then he has all right to do it, and every authority lent to him by Jesus, but only through the word. And the church needs to come into submission to that for their upbuilding. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Let's move on into our next section. Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Let's so stop right there. We saw last time that Paul knows that some of the church want to know if he is the real deal. 
They want proof that he, what he's doing and saying are from the Lord and that he really is an apostle. We saw that last time. And, and as an overview of these two important passages, this response from Paul, pre-visit, is pretty interesting. He says, how about this? You're asking, you're gonna, you want me to evaluate and tell you and prove to you that I'm who I say I am. How about this? How about you evaluate yourself and see if you're truly born again? That's what he says. But he's not saying it with any malice or any guile. And again, it's for the edification and upbuilding of the church. And it isn't as if he's mocking them. He's not. In fact, he led many of them to faith. And he says, you should be able to see Jesus in your reflection. That's what he says at the last part of that sentence. He fully expects them to pass the test. And this is our next example, number 14, if you're keeping track of that, from our passage of a faithful minister, a consistent call for self-evaluation. We see that often, don't we, in the scriptures, a call for evaluation? James says that, doesn't he? That the person who looks at himself in the mirror and immediately of the mirror of scripture and immediately turns away and forgets what he saw is a foolish man and doesn't know anything. So it's, it's important that we see in the scriptures what we need to change and not forget. So a consistent call for self-evaluation. And he isn't excluding himself from that call. In fact, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he said, I discipline my body daily and make it my slave, that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Disqualified. So it's not like one standard for everybody else and then one standard for Paul and a different one for Paul. He calls himself to the same exact standard. And you might find that this is a surprise to you, but this is very prevalent in Jesus' teaching. In fact, like we did last week, I'd like you to turn. There's two passages I want you to turn to. First one is Luke 13, 22, and the next one is Matthew 7, 21. So turn there if you would. I'd like you to look down in your copy of God's Word. This is, these are very important passages, very relevant for the church all through the ages. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples and emphasizing the most important things. And I think you'll see this as we get into it. So Luke 13, 22, we're going to pick up. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So he's doing his ministry. He's in one city after another, traveling and preaching the gospel and teaching people about the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? So what's the problem? Well, I think what they're observing is what is typical of what we see in the church and what we've seen in the church all through the ages that many, many thousands are hearing Jesus speak every single day, but there's only a few actually following him. They'll come and hear what he says, and hear his instruction, and go back to their own life and not change one bit. And so some who are following him are saying, hey, how come there's only just a few? So he answers and he says to this, look at verse 24. He said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once, verse 25, the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from, verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, verse 27, and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from, depart from me, all you what? So what's going on here? What's going on is precisely what the one of the disciples noticed. Many, many people come and hear Jesus teach, but not many change and follow. And what's going to happen at some point, there won't be any more opportunity to follow, and people will be there, and they'll say, hey, how come I didn't get to go? We did these cool things with you, and we heard you teach. But Jesus says, depart from me, all you evildoers. And then verse 28, in that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out, verse 29, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, verse 30, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And here at the very end, he's really referring to the religious leaders of the day who thought they were in with Jesus. They thought because they knew all this stuff and that they were part of that group that would be redeemed. They, that, and they're talking to a pe- people did Jesus things. They heard Jesus talk. They were really excited about his teaching. And, and they got kind of, uh, you know, mobilized a little bit because of what he said. They thought their goodness would save them. You know, they, they thought they were good enough already. They didn't need this uh, repentance. They didn't have to come in the narrow gate. They were already in the narrow gate. You know, there was never any repentance, and their actions were those of evildoers, see? It wasn't what happened in, in particular on that certain day that they taught. What was the pattern of the life? The pattern of the life was you never came in through the narrow gate. You never repented. You were never there where you needed to be, and now you can't get in. Jesus hasn't changed your life, then the Jesus you met was another Jesus, like Paul said the false, disciples, the false apostles taught. The counterfeit conversion, beloved, if there's no death to self, no submission to the lordship of Jesus, no taking up the cross, no obedience to following his word, no fruit of repentance, just empty words, shallow feelings, and barren religious activities. That's all it is. See, If there's no conversion that changes you, then you didn't get converted. Because when you're changed, there's submission to the Lordship of Christ, there's death to self, there's taking up the cross, and there's obedience to His Word and fruit of repentance. Now, look over if you would. Here's a similar passage, one you may be more familiar with. Again, just as shocking as this one, and as shocking as Matthew 18 and Luke 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. Look there if you would. Make some notes here. I think this will be helpful for you. Verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, what's the last word? Lawlessness. Again, what is the lifestyle practice? Lawlessness. What's the lifestyle practice? Evildoers. They said the right things. They did the right things. They had the right names for Jesus. They said, Lord, Lord. They looked like on the outside where everyone could see that they were in for all apparent purposes. They did the right things. They looked the right way. They, you know, and this is even those who, who led churches and, and said they performed many miracles and cast out demons in your name and prophesied and all of that kind of thing. Listen, you could do all of that in the power of the flesh, obviously, because they did those things, but they never repented. They never came in the narrow gate. And what's the outcome of a lifestyle of lawlessness? It's the same one as a lifestyle of evildoer. You fail the test, and that position, untreated, results in eternal death. Paul pointed this out earlier in our letter of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, so do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Whenever, anytime Paul says, do you not know, he's just saying this is common knowledge. You should know this. It's not hard to figure out. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, verse 10, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. So again, not an exhaustive list, but a list mixed in with all kinds of things that we create a hierarchy of. Those who or participating in sexual immorality when they're not married, those who are married and, and have a sexual immorality with someone who's not their wife, those who replace God with something, those who, who change, want to change their gender and act one way or the other, uh, those who have a sexual relationship with those who are of the same sex, those who steal, those who desire to have everything they don't have, people who participate and become drunk, revilers, those who, who constantly make fun and, and criticize everybody else, swindlers, those who are all about you know, making money and making sure they, they uh, get it from someone else, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a lifestyle pattern. And beloved, I'll, I'll say this again to you that I've said over and over again, if everyone who thought they were saved were really saved, then there wouldn't need to be any warnings like, don't be deceived, would there? And yet we see them all over the place. It's easy to believe that you're born again, but you have to come in the narrow gate. And the idea presented in all of these passages calls into question the suggestion that someone could be a true Christian while the pattern of their life and their value system and their speech and their actions and their attitudes are marked by a stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus' commands. That's a suggestion that shouldn't even need to be refuted. That if your whole life is, and your whole pattern of life and your value system and your speech and your actions and your attitudes are marked by a refusal to submit to Jesus' commands on whatever level over a long period of time, to suggest that somehow you are born again is a suggestion that shouldn't even need to be refuted. It's not possible for that to be the case. See? You have to take up your cross. You have to die to yourself. That, that folly is the idea pointed out in each of these passages, isn't it? You said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these ministry things, churchy things in your name? Lord, didn't we hear you teach? Didn't we sit while you were there? Didn't we eat the food you gave us? Depart from me, I don't know who you are. Again, Paul is speaking Christ to them. He's saying the same things that Jesus said many times. So he says in verse 5, he says, test yourself. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Paul's desire is that this reappraisal should take place before he reaches Corinth. That's his desire. If the church reacts properly to his letter, discipline is going to prove unnecessary, will it not? That's the whole point. He wants them restored. He's not trying to cast them out. He wants them to come back in. But verse 5 is so thorny. I mean, it's really like going out to, to your to your garden, just grabbing a rose or something right off the bush. I mean, no matter where you grab it, you're going to get poked. People don't like to hear this. People, I have a relationship with Jesus. Don't, don't question that about me. I, I came forward in 1972, and I remember coming forward. Beloved, you can come forward a hundred times in the church, but if you don't go in the narrow gate, it won't make any difference how you are. And besides that, what's happening in your life now? Is it a pattern over a long term that you've lived just like the world? Because if you have, it doesn't matter how many church slogans and how many church uh, purposes you know and how many church words you can say and how well you know the Bible. You can know the Bible very well academically and still be cast away. That's the whole point of not being deceived, see? And here's the thing. He says this, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence, at least in the two letters we've read, 
to suggest that the Corinthians have ever questioned their own status as a believer. It's just like today, people automatically assume that they're born again, all evidence to the contrary. And Paul isn't saying that their faith is counterfeit or that they're anything other than saints because that's how he addresses them. He assumes they'll pass the test. He sometimes says that they're shallow, if you remember 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Listen to this, he says, and brethren, so who's he speaking to? This is to the church. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, and women are included in there, of course, it's just in the masculine. You weren't acting as mature believers, so I couldn't, I couldn't talk to you like a mature believer. But how were you acting? But as to men of flesh, so unredeemed, or as to infants in Christ, so either one of the two, and they can resemble each other very clearly. Unredeemed and infants in Christ can mimic each other's actions. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, so when he taught them, he had to go right back to the beginning, the most simple of teaching so they could understand it, because you're not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. So you haven't changed at all since I was there before. You're precisely in the same position you were before. For you are still, he says, verse 3, fleshly. For since there is jealousy, how do we know that, Paul? Well, since there's jealousy and strife among you, constantly arguing, constantly being jealous of one another, uh, all the gossip and slander that goes along with that. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? He's calling into question how they interact with one another, and that becomes indicative of whether or not they're born again or not. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Again, just a few more illustrations. I think you can see this. You've probably read these passages, but now you understand the context. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident... So what's the problem in the church? People are doing some certain thing and saying they're spiritual. It's very common in modern church too. I can just go and do whatever I want because, you know, God will forgive me. It's not a big deal. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, again, not an exhaustive list, immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are the three things we looked at in Paul's passage to the Corinth, to Corinthians. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, verse 21, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who, here's the word, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You who practice lawlessness, you who are evildoers. Again, what's the pattern of the life? This is what's caused into question. Can a believer be trapped by their own lust and sinfulness? Sure. It'll be temporary, but here's the question. What's the pattern? Is it the world's pattern? Examine yourself. That's why Paul's saying this. What should we be looking for if we're not in the world's pattern? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These are the things you want to see in your life. What is the pattern of your life? Obviously, not perfectly bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but they have to be there, don't they? In some increasing measure over time. So you take a look. Is, are the deeds of the flesh evident in my life over a long period of time? Or is it the fruit of the Spirit evident in my life over a long period of time? There's the comparison. Those who belong to Christ, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a positional truth for you. 
You died with Christ, and the old man was put to death in the flesh, and you rose again in the new person. That's a positional truth for you. Now look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's the practical truth. So if you're born again, the fruit of the Spirit will begin to be bore in your life over time. And you will walk by the Spirit. Positionally, as a believer, you could still be infants in Christ. And so that fruit might be all shriveled and there might be very much there. And so Paul calls them in deeper and go up higher. Here, he says, listen, the fruit of the, uh, of the flesh is evident. If that's what's in your life is the pattern, that's a bad thing. Because that either says that you are men of flesh or infants in Christ. Instead, what needs to be there? The fruit of the Spirit in ever-increasing measure. And so you take a look at yourself and say, okay, since I've come to know Christ as my Savior, has the fruit of the Spirit begun to be born? How about this? Has, has the fruit of self-control begun? So these habits that you had in your life, perhaps, whatever they may be, has self-control begun to bring them under subjection to what the Word of God says? How about gentleness? How about faithfulness? How about patience and peace? In response of love? Not perfectly, obviously, in this flesh, but that's the pattern of your life. Or is the pattern of your life the deeds of the flesh? He says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He was always faithful to call people to examine themselves, to take the test. Do this, he says. So it gets our attention, doesn't he? Do this. What do you want me to do? Knowing the time. So see how far in advance we are down the timeline to Christ's return. See how close, to use Jesus' example, we are to the narrow gate being closed. See how close we are to people calling out, Lord, Lord, I don't know you. Awake. The time is for you to awaken from sleep. So shallowness, unconcern about the times, worldliness, trapped temporarily in sin, flirting with the world, all these kinds of things. Awake from that. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. It's almost time to meet the Master. Verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. So examine yourself. Where are you? If you fail the test, repent. What will that look like? Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. All the things that go along with darkness. Everything we just looked at, right? Um, jealousy and strife and, and fornication, idolater, adulterers, and drinking and thieving and covetousness and swindlers. All that... Those are deeds of darkness. Lay it off. What's the implication? It could be going on in the church. There may be some involved with it. Wake up. Your salvation is close. Let us behave. Let's lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, sensuality. Listen, anytime any other sins come into the church, those all come flooding in too. Nobody knows. Anonymous. I can do what I want. Listen, the Lord knows, and He says, you know, and wake up. Not in strife, not in jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Those are practical applications of your positional truth that you are already in Christ. Put Him on as a garment. If you've got Him on as a garment, then these things that you've been participating in, you perhaps will be ashamed to do because it's Christ that you're living. I remember... And I love this, make no provision for the flesh. You know, if I'm getting ready to go on a five-day backpacking trip, I provide for myself. I make provision in the backpack so I don't have to need anything. I can go and camp for five days. I'll have everything I need. Here it says, make no provision for the flesh. 
The idea is appealing to the new you. You know what provision you make that causes you to fail on a regular basis. Do you not? And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says you should know how to manage your own vessel in sanctification and honor. You're able to figure that out because the Holy Spirit lives in you now, so don't make provision for failure. Set your life up so you don't continue to fail and be pleasing to the Lord and throw off the deeds of darkness. I remember reading John MacArthur quoted this. I posted this on social media a few weeks ago. He says this, quote, Of course it's a tragedy for Hindus to go to hell, or Buddhists, or Muslims. It's a tragedy for atheists and Jews who've rejected the Messiah to go to hell. It's a tragedy, he says, for anybody to go to hell. But it seems to me, he says, that the tragedy of all tragedies is the oft-repeated Judas tragedy where you hang around Jesus but end up belonging to Satan. That's the real tragedy. And that's precisely the tragedy Paul's trying to avoid. You hung around the church all your life, but you were never born again. You never came in the narrow gate. You could say all the right words and do all the right things, and everybody on the outside thought you were born again, but you weren't. See? That's the Judas tragedy. You get to be in the inner circle with Jesus, but you actually belong to Satan. And that gets repeated all too many times. And that's Paul's emphasis here, as it was in our illustrated verses. Now, I want you to look at the key words and key phrases here, and we'll begin to wrap up for today. We're going to push right through the end. Look at verse 5. Paul says this. He says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. That word test, present, active, imperative, parazzo, in a negative sense, parazzo is um, usually passive, or it can be reflexive, it can mean to tempt yourself or to be tempted by sin. Um, it's used in Matthew 16, 1, when the Pharisees came to put Jesus to the test. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, it's used there. He's tempted, that's um, in the passive. Those are wicked ways in, in which that word uh, parazzo is used to test. Here, though, it's commanded by Paul to ask the right questions. The word is actually from the word to pierce. It has to do with breaking through what's on the outside, on the surface, into what it's made out of, to expose it. It is in the imperative. It's what Paul expects uh, some to do before he comes. So it's addressed to a few in the church, and he wants them to take a look and test. What does he expect them to find on the inside? Well, I'll tell you for sure, it's not some subjective evaluation and outcome. It's not, this is my relationship to Jesus, so don't question me. I can do whatever I want. He says, test yourself and see if you are in the faith. So it's objective. Resting in the Lord Jesus for their salvation. As a result of repentance confession and belief that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. And considering everything we've looked at so far by way of illustration today, accompanying that salvation will be a change in the pattern of life and the bearing of fruit by the Holy Spirit's activity in the new person. I think we can understand that. They go together. It's not possible to be born again and also not changed. Because if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. We've died with Christ. We shall live with him. Romans 6.8. If you have died in your life, then it's hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. 3. So, very clearly, a huge change. And so, the change is certainly, from your very basic foundation, you are a new person, 
And then accompanying that regeneration that comes from repentance, you have the accompanying works of the Holy Spirit in ever-increasing measure over time as the Word sanctifies you. So very clearly, it's not objective, I mean, it's not subjective truth somehow. You test yourself, I did, and I'm good. If you're in the faith, and the faith is not subjective. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 John is really great. He wrote this whole letter so that people would know that they know Jesus and have life in his name. And he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So if he gave you his spirit, which we know he did, then it begins to bear fruit in your life and you begin to show forth that type of fruit and that's the beginning of how you live. And it, he begins to correct your actions, sanctifies you with the truth he brings to bear and corrects your conscience. It helps you understand these things. So if we... Know we abide in him because his spirit is there. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That becomes your testimony, doesn't it? The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That becomes part of the very fabric of your life. That's how you live. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he's in God. So again, that becomes part of your confession. You, you witness that to people. It becomes your, your default. You understand this is what happened and we're to confess Jesus before men because he's given us that job to do. Take the test. Are you in the faith? So again, just over and over again. Paul says, I teach you as if you're saints. Are you? Then he says this, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Present active imperative. Dokimazo, that's the word approved, that's uh, the dokima, those people who existed in the first century and on, who weighed all the money, made sure it was the right size, if it was supposed to be a certain weight, they certified that, that's the idea, prove legitimate, this is what they wanted Paul to do, prove you're legitimate, Paul, is it Christ speaking in you, Paul gives them the command, and to everyone else who reads it, it's the same word we have in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. remember we read this as we take communion, a man must examine himself, that's our word, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. So, in this passage, do you want to avoid chastening? Examine yourself. Do you want to avoid being cast away? Repent. Ask the right questions. Do you, do you want to avoid coming up to the narrow gate too late and being locked out? Then ask the right questions and repent. See, Examine yourself. Take the test. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, if anybody thinks he is someone when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must, here's our word, examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Are you living in sinfulness? Are you holding on to unforgiveness? Do you practice gossip? Listen, are you in immorality? Let's take a look. Examine yourself. That's the idea. Ask the right questions. Compare it with the correct standard. They are to approve themselves on the assumption that the assessment will be positive. That's what he means when he says in verse 5, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? He expects it. It's a rhetorical question, and that should be the case without a doubt. That's the idea. Can the Corinthians not recognize themselves to be men and women in whom Jesus is resident? And the verb is present, active, indicative. This is the case, tense, and voice of reality. This is your reality, surely. He had given them the gospel, and Paul had every reason to believe that they're born again, and that the spirit of the risen Christ indwells in them, which just means they've been taken captive temporarily by sin, and he fully expects them to respond before he has to come and do discipline. Unless, he says, you what? Unless you fail the test. Ah, dokimas. Compound verb, present, active, indicative. Ah is the negative particle. 
and you know this, it's put on the front of a, a verb, that becomes the opposite, a dokimos. Dokimos is proven or proved, so both together is unapproved. Unless you show that yourself, you show yourself unapproved, what's that mean with money? It's been shaved down, it's the wrong weight, it's been altered, it represents something it isn't. And that's the whole idea here. You are representing something that you aren't. You're representing that you're a believer, but you're not really a believer. And that's the whole point of Jesus' warnings at the beginning. Unless the reality is that you're not in the faith. And again, the suggestion that someone could be, and I say this again because this is so important for you to get this, the suggestion that someone could be a true Christian while the pattern of their life and their value system and their speech and their actions and their attitudes are marked by a stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus' commands on any level, that suggestion doesn't even need to be refuted. Listen, it's not possible for that to be the case. The reality is that they're still in their sin. And Paul's logic here is just really, I think, devastating. Let the Corinthians take time. Examine themselves. Nobody's ever called that question in on him. Now he is. Let them dwell on the truth, which the apostle does not mention at this point, that they are what they are thanks to his ministry. In other words, this is so great. If they pass the test or if they realize they're lost, either of those realized realities they can thank Paul for, can't they? Because he's faithful. When you give out the word, it does both, doesn't it? It affirms those who are in the faith and it resonates or it calls people to repentance and to change. That's why he says in verse 6, he says, but I trust you'll realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. He's not bragging on himself. He's just saying this. As you go through the process of either passing or failing, you'll have to conclude that Paul's a, a, a credible apostle, can't you? I mean, because he gave the word and you were able to see clearly the outcome either way. Conviction of sin, it's not about how uh, big persona, it's not about big productions, it's not about all of that stuff. It's about whether or not the word is presented so people can understand they need to repent or be sanctified and grow and understand what that looks like. It's very, very simple. Conviction of sin, contrition over sin, confession of sin, turning from sin, repeat daily. Conviction, contrition, confession, turn from it, repeat over and over and over. That's, that's how you came in and that's how you stay see, in fellowship. And the pattern of that life will give evidence of salvation and passing the test. And there will be fruit being born. And no matter how old you are, if you got to the point, as a, even as a child, to the age of an accountability where you understand, uh, you understand sin and you understand your own sin and you understand Christ's payment, then you'll be able to pass the test or fail it yourself. Just ask the question. Don't worry about what mom and dad, they remember you came forward, I prayed for you through in bed or whatever. Listen, those are all great things and sweet. And you want your kids to follow after you until the point they follow after Jesus. And then they don't follow after you anymore. And you just become this window and you want to make sure it's clear so they can see through it. But they follow after you and then they follow Jesus. And that's what you want. So don't hold that over their head like, well, don't, you, know, you, don't need to, you don't need to take the test. Sure they do. Everybody does. I mean, that's the whole point of Jesus' comments to us. And that's Paul, every single church. Hey, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Even a child's known by his ways, isn't he? He understands what he's doing most of the time. And when they're little, that's why you correct them. You understand, they understand what's wrong and right. You apply the paddle to them regularly so they can understand the, the, the repercussions of actually disobeying you because there's huge repercussions for disobeying God and you're showing them what that relationship looks like, both through your correction and your reward and instruction. So he says, trust you realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. 
He taught them consistently so the church could respond in repentance. He taught consistently so the church could respond in obedience. And perhaps they need to respond because the test shows they haven't yet. They need to change course. They're headed for disaster. They're in the middle of their own pride. I'm a battleship. You change. Paul said to his son of the faith, Timothy, and I'm going to end with this. We're done. He talks to Timothy, Timothy, uh, pastor in Ephesus. He says, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers and disobedient to parents and ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, marked as holding a form of godliness although they have denied its power. You understand who this is directed to, right? Timothy's not being warned about the world. We already know what the world's like. These are people in the church. How do you know? Well, without self-control, so the fruit of the Spirit's gone, haters of good, irreconcilable, you can't possibly get through to them. They've committed themselves to a certain way and no amount of reasoning is going to make it. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Churches are filled with people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They do whatever they want during the week. They fulfill every lust, every desire that they want to come in. They come to the church and help, try to help themselves feel better and stand in huge thousands and thousands of crowds of people who are lifting up their hands, worship. Listen, the Lord wants worship, but he wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. You can see churches there with thousands of people with hands lifted up and they go right out and they live exactly like the world does all the rest of the time. Listen, that is not the worship the Lord wants, is it? What's the worship? Submitting yourself to him, obedience to his word, following what he says to do, desiring very much to grow. And we don't do it perfectly, do we? And when we're brand new believers, we don't even know how to do it. We have to learn, don't we? We have to read the Word of God and discover what's pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's how you grow, isn't it? These are religious people. Paul, Paul wasn't warning Timothy about the world. We know what comes from the world. He's warning Timothy of what's going to come into the church. Verse 7, it says, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Bible studies, small groups, you know... Online studies, all that, always Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, never serving, right? Never, we want to be in the teaching of the Word. We've had people like that. I've had people in, in ministry over the years like that. Well, how come we don't do, you know, Wednesday night? How come we don't do Sunday night? How can we do it? Listen, there's plenty of opportunity to serve. Find a place to plug in. Goodness, we're pickled in teaching. We, there's enough. We have enough, don't we? We can grow. Branch out. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge. This is the church. Okay? So Paul calls the test. Figure it out. Answer the right questions. Ask the right questions. Answer them correctly if you can. Jesus. Not many search for the narrow gate. There's lots of people who are walking down a really wide path, but it's not in the right direction. That's where we are. That's how we come to the end of that section. I think it's enough. I think it's enough to think about. I think it's if you know Christ as your Savior and you can see a pattern of life where obviously the Holy Spirit's at work, it's a rejoicing time. You answered like he expected the church to answer. Yes, I passed the test. Do I do think my life perfectly? No. But I really like to do better over time and I want to be in the Word more and I want to listen to what it says and I want to put it on and I want to put off those things that displease the Lord, deeds of darkness. 
And that's a rejoicing time. That's precisely what the Lord wants us to do. And if you listen to that and you just recognize about yourself and nobody can look into your heart except the Lord and, and you, no man knows the spirit of the man except the man himself, you know that your pattern of your life, regardless of what you said and all the words you can say and how you act it out, you know for a fact that the Lord's never changed you, then you know what to do, don't you? Because the, the invitation is still open and the gate is still open in the narrow way. Come to him in repentance. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Close our time together. Lord, we thank you today for a time to be with the flock and so fun fellowship, a joy of reading your word and rejoicing in what it says and being encouraged and strengthened by it and, and of course, challenged as if Jesus were here and he is, saying the words he said to his disciples again, as no doubt he rejoices that the church hears again his precise words. And as we think about Paul's example of how to lead the church and even doing the hard things, we again can rejoice because we know that when we hear what the word says, even though it's hard and thorny, that it is for our good. The Lord loves us and desires us to walk with him, and it's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of repentance. And so, Father, I, I pray that um, as we begin to take this in today and, and process all that, that you'll help us not to be distracted from the things that really matter before we leave here today. Coming to faith and repentance. And then moving from there into discipleship and sanctification moving away from Paul's indictment on Corinth in chapter 3 that move away from, or chapter 6 rather, move away from uh, the milk and, and the simple things because we're still men of flesh and women of flesh, but into those spiritual things and deep things that come to those who desire to serve you. And Lord, as we depart here today and we go into our week, we're looking forward to a time where we can do those things you provided jobs for many and, and we, can, we can take care of our needs and they might be difficult jobs, but we're grateful for them. It's the way you provide for us. And Lord, I pray that we'll be salt and light in those places, that we'll go out and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. Do good to people we meet. They might glorify you. And secondly, Father, we might then, in those opportunities, give your word out to every person. And then see them baptized, and then teaching them to observe everything that you have said. And in that effort, you are with us always. Always obedience, always. Salvation, apart from obedience, is no salvation. It's a different Jesus. Help us to be clear. Give us opportunities with loved ones we know don't walk with you, perhaps are deceived. Give us the gracious words to say, our neighbors, that we might have opportunity. Most everyone will say they're a Christian. Most everyone will say they're on their way to heaven. All evidence to the contrary. Help us and give us opportunities in those places, in our sphere of influence. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.